Well, it's good to see everybody. Good to see you. Good to be back. Yeah, it's good to be back after uh, an ice day. Does everybody have power back in the church for the most part? Yeah. I did not. We had folks in our church that did up in Allen Park, Taylor. Was it bad down here too? Some places. They canceled classes, so we had to come down Fourth Street to Van Horn and go to Allen Road. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it did get nasty out ice wise. So I'm glad we're all back. Most of us are back. And uh, if you have the latest handout, I think it goes through page 82. So if I'm not mistaken, we're starting on page 76 tonight. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Does that sound right to everybody else? And. Uh, we actually were a little bit ahead of schedule last week, so I think we'll be okay. We'll just go as far as feels comfortable tonight, and then we'll pick up next week. So we'll start there in just a second on page 76, point E, where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection in chapter 20, verse 17. But before we dive in, let's just pause for a second and, and pray together. Father, I am grateful that you gave us uh, safety and good health so that we could be here tonight. Um, I just pray that you would help us to use this time well. We're thankful that your Son, uh, the eternal Son of God, came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I pray that those of us tonight who know that we have been ransomed by his blood uh, would think carefully about his words and, and use this time well. And we ask for uh, this blessing in his name. Amen. All right, so starting there in chapter 20, verse 17. Remember when we left off at the beginning of chapter 20, Jesus has just given that long parable about the men who come to work in the field at different points of the day, but then at the end they all receive the same compensation. And the point of that parable is the, the need for grace, right? We don't really want what we've earned. We don't really want justice. We want God's grace. And right on the heels of that then, Jesus gives his, his third and last prediction that they're going up to Jerusalem and he's going to die. So this is what he says there, in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. 
they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So it's a very detailed prediction of exactly what's going to happen. And I think it sets up a contrast with what comes next. So Jesus just says, I'm going up to Jerusalem. Uh, these, these horrible things are going to happen to me. But on the other side of that, I'm going to be raised on the third day. And then we have the mother of James and John. So those are the sons of Zebedee that it refers to there in the next paragraph. Verse 20, she comes up and on behalf of her sons, the two disciples, uh, she wants a favor from Jesus. Uh, she wants to know if her two sons can sit one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom in verse 21. Uh, Jesus kind of gently, I think, rebukes her. She doesn't know what she's asking. He essentially says there will be somebody sitting there, but it's up to the, the father to decide that. Uh, in the meantime, though, are they willing to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? So he's using the cup as a metaphor for his death. So a cup in the Old Testament was a metaphor for things that you received under God's sovereignty. Often bad things, judgment, but also good. I think the expression is kind of similar to uh, our modern expression, you, you play the hand that you're dealt. So you drink the cup that's put in front of you. If it's put in front of you, you have to drink it. If the cards are dealt to you, you have to play them. Of course, he's not just talking about random chance, though. He's talking about God's sovereignty, that God has ordained, planned, that there was a cup that he had to drink. And if we, as Jesus' followers, if we want to share in his kingdom someday, then if he asks it of us, we should be willing to suffer like he did. He doesn't ask it of all of us, right? Most of us live much easier lives than he did. But if that's what he wanted us to do, then we should be willing. And of course, you think of those two men's later history, right? James is going to become the first martyr in the early church. John seems to live the longest of the disciples. He lives to be a very old man for his day but a difficult life where he actually spends his, some of his final years in, in exile. So point two, instead of looking for how to advance ourselves, which that seems to be the issue, right? These, the, the two guys were trying to advance their position in the future kingdom by having their mother come and speak on their behalf. But instead, Jesus' followers should follow his example and be servants. So this is another key passage. So it's worth putting up there on the screen. So picking up in verse 25, Jesus called them together. That's all the, all the 12, because the, the other 10 have heard what James and John did, and they're upset about it. So Jesus gathers them all together, and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So that's how most people in the world operate. If they get an authority position, they use it just to promote themselves. And they don't really care about the people under them. That's just the way we, we naturally operate. But in verse 26, he says, not so with you, right? If you're given authority or responsibilities as a Christian, 
I think this applies to the church setting, the workplace setting, the home, any place where you've been given responsibilities. You should be a servant, a help to those underneath you. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So it's in this context of talking about how we should serve others that Jesus gives himself as the ultimate example of someone who humbly served. So when, you know, for example, Paul gets to Philippians chapter 2 and he uses Jesus that way, he's on good standing, right? Because Jesus himself used himself that way as an example. And the ultimate example of serving is this, this ransom price that he paid. So when I say there in point two, when Jesus says he will give his life a ransom for many in verse 28, he begins to teach his disciples about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It's a big word that we use. It's, it's a good word. It's not a term that occurs just like that in Scripture, but it captures what Jesus did for us. There was people who were going to trust in Jesus, who were going to repent of their sins, and Jesus was their substitute. He died in their place. He took the sin uh, the punishment of sin that they had deserved. And this isn't a new concept. This is actually drawn from Isaiah 53. So let's just go to Isaiah 53 for a second, verses 10 through 12. So remember, all of Isaiah 53 is talking about this future servant of God who will show up to rescue the people of Israel. When the passage starts out, it becomes pretty clear that the people who are speaking are actually future Jewish people, future Israelites. So the prophet Isaiah writing 700 years before Jesus, he's writing the words that will be spoken retrospectively, looking back at Jesus. So someday in the future, Israel's sins will be taken away, they'll be restored as a nation, and they'll say, who would have believed our report? Who would have believed the way this turned out? The one that we thought was despised, the one that we thought was very unimpressive, he's actually the one who saved us. He rescued us. And then the, the passage goes on in their own words to describe how he did this after they had been wandering like lost sheep, right? It says in verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, that's the servant, that's Jesus, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus is going to die here as a relatively young man without any physical descendants, which in his day would have been considered a great tragedy, a great scandal, right? A sad thing. But this says that after he dies, not only is he going to come back to life, but he's going to have offspring. How does that work? Well, I think Matthew's been cluing us into that all the way along, this idea of a family. Jesus is going to have this great family of people that he's bought with his own blood. They are going to be his legacy. They're going to be what he can show to his own glory, just like a father would with pride over his own children, right? So he says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, there's the key word, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, there's the word again, and he made intercession for the transgressors. So how are these transgressors, another way to translate it would that be rebels. How are these rebels in Israel, these people that we've been reading about all through the Old Testament into the New Testament, how could people like that, how could people like you and me, because it's also going to include Gentiles, we've been seeing that in Matthew's story, how could rebellious transgressors be found right, be justified, have their sins forgiven? How could they ever be set free? And the answer is because Jesus paid for their sins. He died his life in place of their life. So this isn't a new concept when Jesus starts teaching it. It's something that was already there in the Old Testament in a passage like Isaiah 53. So I say there in the middle of that paragraph, and way back in chapter 1 when we started this class last semester, Jesus got the name Jesus, right, because he was going to save his people from their sins. And we were wondering if we had been reading Matthew for the first time, which probably none of us were, how exactly is he going to do that? How is he going to save his people from their sins? And the answer is he's going to do it by dying for them, by dying in their place as a substitute. All right, that's, uh, that's page 76. So then turning the page to 77... Jesus is now making his way closer to Jerusalem where he's going to die, and he finds himself in Jericho. So we'll just remind ourselves on the map, if you'd zoomed in on northern Judea, so Jerusalem is up in the hills, very hilly area, hard to get to, easy to defend. That's why it made such a great fortress for David's original capital. Jericho, though, is down in the flat area, right along the river. So whether you came from the north through Samaria, which that seems like Luke kind of indicates that that's how Jesus progresses, that he actually makes one final trip through Samaria. But most pilgrims would have been coming down around Samaria through the Jordan Valley. Either way, they cross the river where it's shallow, and they all congregate in Jericho. Jericho would have been where pilgrims from all over the country would have congregated because they, wanted to, they would have wanted to form caravans to go up into the hills together because it's not very safe. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke? As you go up into those hills, there were highwaymen, there were robbers who would attack you. So they would form great caravans. They would sing the Psalms of Ascent as they all progressed up together to Jerusalem. So Jericho, right before the Passover, would have been packed. So we're teaching Matthew, not Luke, but remember the story of Zacchaeus, right? He, Zacchaeus, the, the wee little man, like we like to sing in the song, he's the needle in the haystack. He's the one man out of this huge crowd in Jericho that Jesus, that Jesus finds, right? So as he's there in Jericho, in Matthew's story, just like as in Mark and Luke, it focuses on his healing of the blind man. So in Mark's account, it only tells us that there was one blind man. He's Bartimaeus. It gives us his name. But there's no contradiction. If there's two, then there was also one, right? So if Matthew says there's two, 
and Mark chooses for his own reasons to focus on one, maybe because he's well-known to the church. It's kind of unusual for a man to get named in a healing story, but there's no contradiction. It's the same event. These men, they come up, and they're crying out, Son of David. They capture Jesus' attention. And Jesus' response there, point two, is very similar to the question that he just asked the mother of James and John. So we're supposed to read these two stories in parallel because Jesus asks essentially the same thing. There's somebody coming and they're wanting something. So in verse 32, it's, what do you want me to do for you? In verse 21, when he's talking to the, the wife of Zebedee, it's essentially the same. What is it that you want? Well, what is it the, the, the lady in verse 21 wanted? She wanted special favors for her sons, right? What do these two men want? They just want to see. They just want to be healed. It's a, it's a better request, right? It's a more humble request. So Jesus, he has compassion on them. And then they turn and follow Jesus. You notice that at the end of the story, verse 34, I'll read it for you. Jesus had compassion on them. He touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and they followed him. Which by then in the story, this isn't necessarily a safe or good thing to be doing, right? Where's he going? He's going up to Jerusalem to be handed over to the chief priests. They're going to condemn him to death and give him over to the Gentiles, and he's going to die. He's going to die. But there are people who are still, through faith, following him. So I think right here, as he enters into Jerusalem for the climax of the story, Matthew gives us one last picture of what it truly looks like to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. It's not just an intellectual decision. It's not just you raising your hand in in an evangelistic service. It's you actually following Jesus, being willing to commit yourself to him, okay? That ends chapter 20. Any, any questions there before we jump into 21? Yes? Back, back here at the beginning, uh, you, uh, when you were going through Isaiah, you were saying uh, that, that looks ahead, I think, that looks ahead to Jesus. Well, what I think is happening in Isaiah 53 is that the prophet, he's, he's been given an oracle, he's been given a message by the Spirit to communicate to us. But the words that he's using, the people who are actually speaking in the prophecy, they're people in the future. So I think they're future Israel at the time of Jesus' second coming, after they've been converted. They're looking back retrospectively at Jesus, and they're saying, who would have believed this? Who would have believed that this despised, looked down upon one was the one who actually rescued us? You know, we, we actually esteemed him to be stricken by God. <laughs> when we saw him, we actually thought he was a cursed person who deserved to die on a tree, right? Because that's what the law commanded. But now in hindsight, because we've been converted, we realize that no, he didn't actually die for his own sins. He died for our sins. So even though it's, it's their future words, I think it essentially applies to all of us who come to Christ, right? Uh, and, and we all have different stories of when we came to Christ, how old we were, what kind of religious backgrounds we had. 
But we all had some wrong view or incomplete view of Christ. And now looking back at him retrospectively, we can say, no, he actually, he died for our sins. And uh, uh, he wasn't cursed for his own uh, covenant violations. He bore the curse for us, as Paul will say in Galatians. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. And I just wonder how they can get around this to say that Jesus did not die as a ransom for us. Mm. How can they look at this passage and not see that? So I'm not real familiar with what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach about the crucifixion, they but they don't believe that Jesus died in our place. Hmm. It was more of just like an example of of yeah. love or something like that? Yeah. I think they have their own version of the Bible, too. They do, the New World Translation. Mm-hmm. But, but if I understand it right, that passage is just the same. Yeah. You know, a lot of the passages that we use as proof texts for that are the, the same. Some, some yeah. Yeah, I can't speak to that one directly, but I know... Yeah. I know in general what happens is just sometimes verses just get kind of ignored. They're not emphasized. So what we're supposed to do as students of the Bible is we're supposed to try to put all the puzzle pieces together. We're supposed to correlate all of Scripture. I had a teacher once that said that sometimes when we're doing our theology, it's like we're putting the puzzle together, and then we get done, and we see a couple pieces that we don't think fit, and we just pretend they're not there. That's kind of how I put together Ikea stuff, right? There's always this leftover pile that I just shove away. Because we're like, oh, this doesn't fit, or it doesn't, sometimes we just say, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, how often have you talked to someone about a deep truth of Scripture, and they just said, well, that doesn't seem right, or that doesn't make sense. And so then they're, they're trying to shove it away. But what we need to do is just admit, okay, some things don't make sense to us, but that's what the Bible says. So it has to be right, even if we can't always figure it out. And I think that going back to the, the atonement of Christ, there's lots of passages, Isaiah 53, the statements of Jesus, things that Paul will say in his letters, that make it very clear that Jesus did more than just die as an example. It was an example, but it's more than that. It was actually in our place as our substitute. Um, so that the, the sin that I had incurred that deserved God's wrath, that wrath was placed on Jesus. And then the other side of that is that his perfect obedience, his perfect record is now given to me. It's credited to me as a gift, as if I was the one that did it. And that's, that's what the early church called the great exchange. And it's, it's the only way that I think we are saved. Any other questions or thoughts? All right, so over the next two nights, as we go into Matthew 21 and 22, this is kind of the big outline of what's happening. I think one more time, we're going to see Matthew's love of threes. So he's going to have three sets of three in this final confrontation that's going to lead to Jesus' death on the cross. First, there's going to be three acted-out parables. What I mean by that, in a normal parable, Jesus will tell a story, 
They usually seem to be made-up stories, but they were stories that fit with their everyday life. And you told the story because there was some kind of analogy to a truth that he was trying to teach. But another way of also illustrating something is by like a visual illustration, right? Instead of speaking a parable, you could act out a parable. And this is something that they already knew from the Old Testament prophets. So I have there in, uh, on page 77, in the middle of that big fat paragraph that starts with letter G, I have the example of Hosea, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Those are three well-known prophets who did an acted-out parable. Hosea's is the most famous and probably the most difficult, right? He's actually told who he's supposed to marry. That's his visual illustration. That's, that's a big deal. Uh, Jeremiah, remember, he gets the belt, the leather belt. He's supposed to go get a belt. He's supposed to wear it. Then he's supposed to go hide it. And then after it's been hidden for a while, he's supposed to go find it. And that, that all teaches a point. Ezekiel, he makes the little model of Jerusalem, and then he lays on his side, and he looks at it, and he builds little seed ramps around it. So the, they already had this expectation from the Old Testament that sometimes a prophet could act out his teaching. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. When he comes into Jerusalem, and he picks this purebred donkey to ride on, on, ride on. when he cleans the temple of all of the merchants, and when he curses the barren fig tree, He's acting out a, a truth that he wants them to, to recognize. And then he does three, we could say the normal, you know, the old-fashioned parables of the spoken kind. And then we won't get to this till probably the next week, but he's going to have three confrontations with his opponents where in rapid-fire succession, one after another, people are going to show up in the temple courts as he's teaching, and they're going to confront him. All right, showing that they truly don't believe in what he has to say about himself. Okay, so that's that's where we're headed. I noticed after I wrote the notes that I kind of missed the the blue, the parables. So I talk about the sign acts and I talk about the confrontation, but there's that other set of three, the three parables. So maybe you can jot that in the margin. All right. So let's look at the first one, verses one through eleven describes Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. He would have traveled on that road from Jericho up to Jerusalem. He would have gone about 15 to 17 miles, and he would have climbed about 3,000 feet. Okay, that's how high up Jerusalem is compared to Jericho. And when he comes to Bethpage, this is just a little tiny village, not real significant. It's not immediately clear why Matthew decides to mention it for us, other than it means the house of unripe figs, which he might find significant because of what Jesus is going to do shortly. But when he gets to Bethpage, he's on the other side of the ridge of the Mount of Olives. So we'll give ourselves a little map here of Jerusalem. So that, that dotted line that's more bold, the smaller one, that's probably what the walls look like in Jesus' lifetime. The kind of grayish line that goes up to the north, it's a wall that was begun, it says there, by Herod much later. So you can see in Jesus' day that the temple complex, and we'll show you a picture of the temple in just a second, it overwhelmingly takes up a, a huge section of the city. But they've got just to the east of the city, they've got the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives is, is a long ridge where you can look over at Jerusalem. And on the other side of that ridge is Bethpage. 
And that's where he stops and he asks his disciples to go get these donkeys for him. But not only does Matthew mention Bethpage, but he already mentions that he's approaching the Mount of Olives. Probably two connections from the Old Testament that he wants you to remember. The, the more obvious one, I think, is Zechariah 14. If you take some time later to look at the prophecy in Zechariah 14, it's the prophecy of someday Jerusalem being attacked by its enemies, and the Lord himself, the Son of God, will return, and he will land on the Mount of Olives. When his feet touch it, it will split in two, providing a place for his people to pass through, to be rescued. And then it talks about him defeating his enemies and then setting up his reign here on earth. So the Mount of Olives already had this expectation to it. But another story that they probably would have remembered was David. When David had to flee Jerusalem because of his son Absalom, he also passed by the Mount of Olives. So you had a story, <clears throat> he had a story in the Old Testament about a king who had to run away from Jerusalem because his own son was trying to kill him, David. And then you have David's greatest son, who also someday will come from the Mount of Olives to rescue Jerusalem. Jesus knows that his hearers, the people who are seeing him, are familiar with these prophecies. So he knows that if he starts acting out certain things, that they should be able to make the, connect, the connections. So point two, Jesus sends two unnamed disciples into the nearby village to get a donkey and her colt. All right, so that's interesting. If you look at verses 2 and 3, there's, there's two animals. The first thing we notice is that Jesus seems to be very in control of this situation. He knows that if they go into this village, then they ask a man for these two animals that just right away he's going to give them, okay? It doesn't seem to be that there was any plan ahead of time to do this. It just seems like here God, in the person of his son, is just acting sovereignly to orchestrate this situation. But why the two animals, point three? Have you ever wondered that? Why are there two? Well, there's some debate over why, but I think the best answer is likely that Matthew wants the reader to remember the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. So the prophecy predicted that the Messiah would someday enter Jerusalem in triumph on a donkey. So that's very clear. If you go to Zechariah 9, it's this great prophecy that someday the Lord will march down towards Jerusalem. He'll be defeating his enemies as he goes, crushing the ancient enemies of Israel. He'll get to Jerusalem. He'll camp outside. Then in the picture changes, and now you're inside Jerusalem, and you're seeing him coming in. He'll enter the city on a horse, I'm sorry, on a donkey, uh, because he's now defeated his enemies, and it's a time of peace. And then the prophecy goes on to talk about uh, him fighting on behalf of his people and setting up a reign that will last forever and go from sea to sea. All right, that's the prophecy in a nutshell of Zechariah 9. But if you look closely at that passage, especially in Hebrew, it's a donkey, one, but specifically it has to be a male donkey. So they have a, their own unique word for a male donkey. And it has to be a purebred donkey. It can't, have, it can't be a mule. It can't have what was a mule. So a mule is a, the mother has to be a horse and the father has to be a donkey. I think I've got that right. 
So, it ha so the way to prove that this donkey is purebred is to have its mother donkey there with it, okay? I think I've got my farming concepts clear there, right? Did I say it the other way around? Right. Yeah, there's a lot of donkey details here. So the, the point here, I think, is that if a king was going to ride into uh, a city, and if he wanted to show that he was prosperous and at peace, the preferred mount would have been a purebred donkey. Sometimes, especially in preaching or popular books, you'll hear it said that this is supposed to emphasize the fact that he's being humble. So instead of choosing a horse, he's choosing a donkey. But that doesn't seem to be right, because we actually have instances of Solomon, for example, in the Old Testament. Solomon rides on donkeys. Uh, we just talked about uh, David riding on donkeys. And we have other evidence that kings would ride on a donkey, but they only rode on donkeys at times of peace when their enemies had been defeated, when things were going well. If they were at war, then certainly a horse would have been a more appropriate mount. So I think here I say in the notes that the modern analogy would be probably something like a limousine, right? If a, if a, if a head of state, if some monarch wanted to have some procession to show that everything was going well and that he was prosperous and things that were at peace, they normally wouldn't stand on a tank, right? There's some countries in the world that they might still do that, but most countries they wouldn't. They wouldn't be on a tank. They do a limousine, right? That's how we would do it in our country. So I think that the purebred donkey is the equivalent of a limousine. How do you prove to the people that it's purebred? You do it by having his mother there because she's also a donkey. So she's there as a prop, so to speak, as an object lesson to make it very clear that this prophecy is being acted out. There's one more thing, too. So I think when Zechariah gives his prophecy of the donkey, he's building on an earlier prophecy. So I say there, point four, significantly, Genesis 49.11 predicted that the Messiah would tie his donkey to a vine and the son of a female donkey to the choicest branch. All right, so if we look at this passage, this is from Genesis 49, 10 through 11. This is that remarkable passage where Jew, or, uh, Jacob is getting ready to die, and he's blessing his 12 sons, and this is the blessing that he gives to his son Judah. This is where in our older English translations, we got the word Shiloh, and now Shiloh has ended up as like a place name or the name on a church, and it's from that phrase there, to whom it belongs. So it was a difficult Hebrew phrase to translate. So it used to be translated, like in the King James, I think it said, until Shiloh comes, right? But now in most of our newer translations, it says, until he to whom it belongs comes. So what Jacob is saying to his son Judah is that you're going to be the royal tribe. There's going to be a right to rule in your tribe, in your family, and that right to rule will never go away until finally the one who rightly should have it gets it, right? That's essentially what he's saying. So it goes, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. You see that universal note there? 
So not just a king of Judah, not just a Jewish king, but a Jewish king who rules over the nations, right? He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. It's a strange picture for us, right? But wine was a precious commodity for them. Grapes were a precious commodity. If you had grapes, you took care of those vines, right? Here the picture is that this king is so wealthy that if he wants to, he could take his donkey and he could tie it up to the vine. And if that donkey eats the vine, which I'm assuming most donkeys would, that's okay because he has more grapes. In fact, he has so many grapes that if he wanted to, he could actually wash his clothing in grapes. Because to him, wine is as good as water, right? Because he's so wealthy. He's so prosperous. Obviously, it's, it's metaphorical language, but it gets the point across. That someday, out of the line of Judah, there's going to be a great king who has the right to rule. The nations will give him obedience. He will be so wealthy that he could tie his donkey, specifically a purebred donkey, to a vine and just leave it there because he has... He has wine to burn, so to speak. He has wine that he could wash his clothes in. So when that prophecy is given a thousand plus years before Isaiah, Isaiah knows about it. Isaiah again talks, I'm sorry, Zechariah. Zechariah again talks about a donkey. And now Matthew is picking that up because Jesus acted out this parable. Jesus knew that they were expecting someday a conquering king would enter the city after he had defeated his foes, and he would do it on a purebred donkey. And Jesus is saying, it's me. I know it doesn't look like it's me. I'm not exactly what you're expecting, but it is me. And because I'm acting out this parable now, you can have confidence that all of Zechariah 9 will someday be fulfilled. I will will do it someday. All right, so that's 78 going to the top of page 79. Picking up at point seven, I think the crowd in Jerusalem, they recognize that Jesus presented himself as the king. So they get the point of the parable. This can be seen in their actions and their words. So the spreading of garments and the palm branches on the road marks the festive acknowledgement of Jesus' kingship. That's what Turner says. So this is the way you would have greeted the kings. Again, this sounds weird to us, taking our clothes off, putting them on the street. But this is their way to welcome a king. And there's other passages there that you could look up. They cry out, Hosanna, in verse 9. That originally meant something like, help us or save us. So originally in the Old Testament, Hosanna was a cry for help. You know, God save us, God rescue us. But over time, it became an expression of praise. So it went from a cry of help to an expression of praise. And several people have noticed that we have a similar expression in English that did the same thing. So at one time, God save the king would have been a prayer. You you would have been making a request, right? God do something for the king. But when most people today say that, they're not really asking God to do anything. They're just praising the king. It's just a way of expressing excitement or enthusiasm for your king. God saved the king. So that's what Hosanna, I think, is essentially doing this. And then again, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna 
in the highest heavens. Both of those are phrases taken from Psalms that refer to the Messiah's reign. All right? So that's the, that's the first big acted out parable. I take a kind of a minority position, I know, because I'm arguing that essentially Zechariah 9.9 isn't fulfilled when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. So sometimes a prophecy is fulfilled like it's checked off, it's done. Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Check. He did it, it's done, right? Sometimes prophecies just are kind of fulfilled in some kind of parallel fashion. So Matthew says it matches the prophets that Jesus would be a Nazarene. And we discussed that one. There's no prophecy that talks about that. So there's something other than just checking the box that's going on here. I would put Zechariah 9.9 in kind of the middle. What Jesus is doing here, he's saying, someday I will do this, but right now I'm going to give the people a little parable, a little sneak preview of what that will kind of look like. And the whole point of doing that is so that they will see that I truly, truly am the king. All right? Any, any questions there over that first one? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, they've let very obvious things pass them by, right? When he's performed very obvious miracles right in front of them, uh, they've attributed it to Satan. And so um, I think that's all evidence that their problem isn't really intellectual. Just like the people that we witness to today, their real problem isn't an intellectual problem. It's not really about us having a cool argument or being able to answer all their questions. It's really a spiritual problem. It's a moral problem. It's something that God can change. So, yeah, I can't can't really speak to what they understood and what they didn't. But even when they should have intellectually understood things, uh, they still morally rejected them. Yeah, they've already, earlier in the book, it's already talked about them plotting to kill him. So even when they show up and start challenging him, you know, here shortly in chapter 22, uh, you know, they don't seem to be well-intentioned in their questions. Like they've already made up their mind what they're going to do. But I was just thinking on the drive over here tonight, you know, the Pharisees obviously show up as kind of the villains in the story, right? You don't want to be a Pharisee in Matthew's gospel. Uh, They are hard-hearted. They're going to be called here in a little bit children of hell, people who don't enter the kingdom and keep other people from entering the kingdom. Jesus is going to have harsh things to say about them. But who was Paul, right? That's what I was thinking about on the drive over here. God took one of them, one of that group, and he converted him and turned him into his greatest missionary, right? What a God-like thing to do, isn't that? He just took one of his greatest opponents and turned him into one of his greatest servants. And so if he could do that for Paul, he can do that for anybody, right? So the fair, even the Pharisees are not irredeemable. And then the other example, I think, is in John's gospel. It seems like Nicodemus also. Nicodemus is part of this group who also, maybe not quite as boldly as Paul, you know, from the get-go, it seems like maybe Nicodemus went through a phase where he was kind of hiding, but he ultimately also puts his trust in Christ. Yep. 
Any other thoughts or questions? So the second thing that Jesus is going to do here, he's going to enter the temple courts and he's going to clean them out of their, their merchants. So just a couple pictures here of the, the temple. So this one's a drawing. This one's kind of high up. So this is, this is from basically the direction of the Mount of Olives, but higher. So the Mount of Olives is a little bit more parallel, but it's kind of an aerial view of what the city would have looked like. So first thing you notice that a large percentage of it is the temple. So as I say there in my notes, that the bigger court, so the large court that's surrounded by the larger rectangle, is the size of 35 football fields. So it's a massive court. And when it says that Jesus enters the temple and he casts out the merchants, they would have been in that outer court. So the court of Gentiles would have been the bigger area. So there's the porticos, porticos over there to the left, so the covered areas with the pillars, that's where in the book of Acts, the early church would have met and had their services. Lots of people coming and going. And then there was like concentric rectangles going in. So there was a court of women, and then there was a court where men and priests could enter. And then finally that T-shaped building that's tall in the very middle is the actual sanctuary itself with the Holy of Holies and the holy place, all right? But it's that sanctuary, you know, that's basically patterned off of Solomon's temple is just one piece of this huge complex. And then over to the right, so in the right top corner from where you're looking is uh, the uh, fortress that the uh, Herodians built alongside the temple. That's where Paul will get grabbed and dragged off to when the riot takes place. So another picture, this is from the the model that they now have in Jerusalem, if you ever go to Jerusalem. I've just seen pictures of it, but it's, it's made to scale, so it's actually really small. But in pictures, it looks like the real thing. So Jesus would have been in that outer court, and he would have met these money changers, and he starts overturning their tables and casting them out. So I say there, well, actually, I don't say it. It's a big, long quote that, again, I have from Turner's commentary. There probably was a tax that needed to be paid, and there were certain animals that needed to be offered. So the people had legitimate needs for their money to be changed and for these animals to be purchased, but this had turned into a large commercial uh, you know, venture for these people. Probably two issues going on. One, probably just crowding out the space that the Gentiles were supposed to have to worship in but then also probably being dishonest and cheating people in the process. For on both accounts, Jesus drives them out and cleans them out. What's the point of that? What's the point of Jesus driving these people out of the temple? Yeah, and it's my father's house, right? It's, 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 he's, to a certain degree, I think he's showing ownership over it, right? So he, he's scolding them because it's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of worship. And he's also claiming the fact, and I'm the one that gets to decide what is worship and what's not worship, right? There's something special about me where I actually have the right to say how this building can be properly used. So he's, I think, claiming ownership. And they had a long expectation that when the Messiah came, that he would make a new temple, a thoughtful Jewish believer looking at Old Testament scriptures would have known the Messiah is a temple builder. He's going to tear down the existing temple because it's corrupt. 
and he's going to make a new one. So I think at least the thoughtful believers among them would have picked up on the fact that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah who owned the temple and could make a new temple. And Jesus here in verse 13, he's going to allude to at least two Old Testament passages. So he says, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. So you notice in our NIVs that there's two sections of that that have quotes. There's actually two Old Testament sections being quoted. So first he quotes from Isaiah 56. That's the part about the house being a house of prayer. But then that last little part, a den of robbers, comes from Jeremiah. That's the one that sometimes we miss because it's smaller, it's a little bit more elusive. But it's also really important, I think, to Jesus' point. So in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah preaches to the people in the temple courts, just like Jesus is now in the temple courts, and he, he reprimands them strongly for their sin and their idolatry. And he tells them, hey, you can't live the way you're living in sin and then come back to the temple and think because you have the temple that now you're safe. Because it seems like the people of Jerusalem, probably especially ever since they saw the Assyrians get destroyed outside of Jerusalem, they think, well, the, the temple is our good luck charm, right? The temple keeps us safe. Because we're the people with the temple, God's not going to let anything bad happen to us. So this is what Jeremiah says to him. He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So a den of robbers, it's a, it's a cave where highwaymen go for safety. So not, don't think den like an animal's den or den like you know, an old-fashioned name for your study at home, right? This is a den, like as a cave for robbers. So remember, robbery in Judah was always a problem because of the rugged terrain. But if the highwaymen were getting chased and they needed to hide, they had a hideout, right? They could go to a hideout up in a cave somewhere and nobody would find them. And that's what Jeremiah's point here is when he's speaking for God. You're treating the temple like it's a hideout. Like, it's going to keep you safe when God comes to judge you. You see how, why Jesus would pick up on Jeremiah and apply it to the people in his day? They're not safe from judgment just because they have the temple. God can destroy the temple, right, and make a new one. And he can hold them accountable because of their sins. So in the middle of that paragraph there, or towards the end, really, of point two, I say, just as Jesus gave a preview of Zechariah 9.9 when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. In cleansing the temple, he's given a preview of the prophecy of Malachi 3.1. So you can look that up later, but that's the prophecy of the God coming back to his temple someday and purifying it. Jesus will return someday and establish a pure priesthood and temple, and it will be a temple where Gentiles are welcomed. Then finally there in verse 14, this is the last mention of Jesus' healing in Matthew's gospel. So we saw, we saw a lot of healing as we went along. This is going to be the very last time. It says that while he's here in that temple court, that large complex that we just saw, 
the blind and the lame, they came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So again, this is that hard heartedness that we were talking about. So there's people just crammed into Jerusalem by this point. You know, they're just a few days away from the Passover, at least hundreds of thousands of people cramming into the city, lots and lots of people crammed into the courts. In front of this large crowd, he's no longer trying to hide who he is. So earlier in his ministry, he seems to have kept it a secret at points so that he didn't immediately cause a confrontation. Now, in the midst of this huge crowd, he's just openly performing miracles. They're seeing lame and blind people healed, right? And then little children are praising him and crying out. The chief priests are like, you should make them stop, you know? Do you hear what they're saying about you? And then Jesus quotes from the Old Testament and says, well, basically, haven't you read that God has always wanted this kind of praise for himself, right? So what is he claiming about himself there, right? That he is God. He, he's, he is worthy of this kind of praise that the psalmist talks about. So even if they were Jews, well, let me just back up. So point three, Jesus is healing in verse 14 is the last mention of Jesus' healing in Matthew's gospel. It's significant that these blind and lame are healed in the court of the Gentiles. Even if they were Jews, they would have been excluded from entering the inner court because of their disability. So what I'm saying there is that even if they were Jewish people, they still would have been on the fringes of that court and not able to enter because of their disabilities, their, their lameness, their blindness. Jesus' healing, like his cleansing, shows that he's Lord of the temple and can welcome those excluded. Turner says his clearing the temple of financial dealings amounts to casting out the insiders. His healing amounts to welcoming the outsiders. All right, it's a good place to, to pause there and just take some final questions. And then we come back next week, we'll pick up with the, the third parable. Yep. Yeah, they, yeah, they seem to have kind of both going on at the same time. So they, they show respect to it because they do recognize that it does represent the true God, and it's at the place where he asked to be worshipped. So you'll see Paul will still, as a Christian, he'll still go up to the temple for different things. 
Jesus regularly is at the temple. But then at the same time, they also do, um, Jesus especially, regularly point out his flaws. So, you know, one of the questions I get is, well, what about the, the temple cleansing in John? Because remember, it happens at the very beginning of his ministry. And I think probably there are two, two cleansings of the temple. So he actually does this twice with a couple years, maybe three years in between. So probably on two separate occasions, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he drives out um, these merchants from the temple. Uh, some people think that he may, may be specifically thinking again of Zechariah 14's prophecy. So the same prophecy that says that Jesus will someday come on the Mount of Olives and rescue his people also says at the very last verse that there will be no longer any Canaanites in the city, but that word could also be translated merchants. So it's, it's not a slam dunk argument, but that could be one of the reasons why he especially keeps singling out the merchants who are in the temple. Uh, but either way, then combined with the way Jesus is going to keep referring back to Jeremiah's temple speech. So in Jeremiah's day, this was, the, this was the Solomonic temple, the true temple, right, we could say, in a sense. But even then, Jeremiah condemns the way it's being used by the people. So even if it had been Solomon's temple in Jesus' day, I think he, like Jeremiah, still would have uh, called the people to repentance because they were using it like a, like a talisman, you know, like a good luck charm. And we still do that with religious objects today, right? If we have a certain object, it makes us safe, right? Um, I used to work at the bookstore there at our church, and I remember people coming in to buy Bibles. And I remember a lady coming in one day, she wanted uh, a, three or four Bibles, and I asked her what she was doing with the Bibles. She wanted them for different rooms in her house. She wanted a bathroom Bible. She wanted a bedroom Bible. She wanted a kitchen Bible. She just wanted them there. And I realized, sadly, it wasn't to read them. It was just so that they were there, right? And, they, it, and you know, that one makes us chuckle because maybe we wouldn't do that. But we do have to evaluate our own thinking in other areas when we just treat holy things as if they're good luck charms. Then we're falling into the same trap that Jeremiah is talking about. And when we get to chapter 23, when Jesus starts confronting the Pharisees and he gives them all those woe statements, I'll again show you there's many links with Jeremiah's uh, speech there. And Jesus, I think, is clearly seeing himself as parallel with Jeremiah, that the problems that Jeremiah confronted are still there. And they still haven't been solved because the people still need to have a change of heart and repent. Any other questions? All right, well, thanks for participating, and Lord willing, we'll have no ice, and I'll see you next Wednesday. Yeah. We'll see you then.